We're continuing in our uh, summer series in the Psalms, so summer in the Psalms. And if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you have one this morning, to Psalm chapter 5. All of our text will be up on the screen this morning if you don't, but Psalm chapter 5. A couple weeks ago when talking about Psalm 3, we introduced Psalm 3 with this superscription, which is the title that's above, uh, above the, uh, the actual text of the psalm. And in the superscription gives us the context of Psalm 3, and that is when David had to flee, uh, had to flee from his son who was trying to kill him. Uh, you might remember his name was Absalom. He was coming to invade Jerusalem, uh, take the king off the, his throne, and probably kill him. And that particular psalm was about the time when he had to flee Jerusalem. You can look back to 2 Samuel 15 through 17 and get the entire story, or just a couple weeks ago when I uh, uh, explained it and unpacked it just a few weeks ago. Um, and it seems that these psalms, Psalm 3, 4, 5, and 6, uh, seemingly come in within that con- same context, within that same historical context. We won't see another historical information in the superscription until Psalm 7, uh, which we'll get to in a a couple weeks. So all of these psalms are dealing with a particular distress and um, anguish, pain, suffering that David is going through, which again continues to be the theme throughout book one of, of the psalms. But these in particular seem to fit within the context of Psalm 3 and the historical context of of, uh, Absalom. Now Psalm 5, as we will read in a moment, falls under this same idea and seems to be no different. It's a prayer. It's it's a prayer, and, and in this prayer, it seems to be the morning after God delivers him from Psalm 3, right? Well, the superscription of Psalm 3, he delivers him, flees this night, and he seems to have made it through the night. Verse 3 of of Psalm 5 says he's, uh, you can see in the morning, right? In the morning, the Lord's with him. And the Lord has answered his prayer through the night, but the danger is still there. The danger has not gone yet. In Psalm 5, we see the anguish, we see the the pain, and we see that it's real. We see that the, the stress is, is, is real, real, but his prayer is squarely based upon God's truth and God's promises as built upon Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. So the, the, the framework of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 gives us the reason of why he's praying this way. Because this is what the blessed man does. In this prayer in Psalm 5, we hear how David is is reassured of God's will to keep his word. That God will keep his word and that God will do justice against the wicked. There used to be a a bumper sticker and a a saying that Christians used to say, they probably do, and, and that is prayer changes things. We have to understand, though, that prayer is not changing God. We're not not changing God. We're not changing his character. We're not changing his nature. But when God's people pray according to 
his truth according to the word of God, according to the promises of God's word and the word of God, then God changes us. It conforms us to his will. So the thing that prayer is changing is us. Maybe we should change it. Prayer changes us as it conforms us to God. Because God's word gives us confidence. God's word gives us a confidence to pray, and that drives us into prayer, but it gives us confidence to boldly come before the Lord and to petition him even in the darkest and hardest times. Now last week, we talked about how David prayed and he turned to the Lord and he made his request to be known and his, his request was, God, hear me. Hear my prayer. Answer my prayer. But he based it upon the character of God. Oh, God of my righteousness. And we talked about how we look to his character and we look to his nature because that is how we understand confidence in the Lord. And certainly here in verse 5 is no different. The God of his righteousness in Psalm 5 is the very center of his prayer. Let's look to Psalm 5, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. To the choir master, master of the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my God, or my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy, all, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing, ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. There are goes without saying, for those who have discernment, it goes without saying that there are a tremendous amount of problems in our society. 
And it's always been that way. I think problems have always existed because of us. New problems, old problems, ignored problems, created problems, 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 and more problems. Brokenness is everywhere. Sin is everywhere. The fallenness of man is on display everywhere. And just as an observer myself, and hearing fairly recent statistics, one of the most underrated problems in our culture that's not talked about very much is a lack of confidence. And I know that seems trivial compared to other things, but it adds up and it builds to others. Lack of confidence, insecurity, fear, a key word or a trigger word, anxiety. All the talk when I was growing up was self-esteem. We have to build each other's self-esteem up. Children's self-esteem needs to be built up and encouraged so that they will have confidence. And this led to a number of things, and some of those we know about, like, like everybody getting a trophy for a sports season. I remember being on a team that was terrible. We lost just about every game, and we go to this pizza party, and the coach hands out trophies, and this is my first time playing rec league, going, what am I supposed to do with this? I mean, the pizza's great, but we were losers. <laughs> I knew. I could see right through it. Also, another example is the, the canceling of using red ink by teachers to grade papers as that could be offensive or cause a lack of self-esteem, ignore the F, being that's the thing that kicks you in the tail and hurts you the most. It's the color. Even, I don't know if they, they truly went through with that. I really don't know. It didn't matter to me. Even with such efforts as that, and, and so much more, right? I mean, there's so many things that they did. Still, children, teenagers, college students struggle today more than ever with a lack of confidence, anxiety, and quote-unquote, stress. Uh, some statistics, 27% of college students, 27% of college students say that they have been diagnosed with some form of anxiety. Diagnosed. Not just say that they have it, but they've literally been diagnosed. And 17% say that, act they, that they are actively on medication for it. Now, 17% doesn't sound like a lot, but as a whole, in its numbers, that's a huge amount of students that is on medication for these things. So why is there so much anxiety and fear today? It seems like we should be the most comfortable and the, most, and the ones who are fearless the most. Why is there such a, a lack of self-confidence when we should have Shelves of trophies and ribbons and purple Fs. It's been the priority of education. Parenting gurus have taught us these things, sociologists and psychologists, <laughs> etc. It just seems as if all of those efforts have just made things worse. And of course, we know there's a lot more variables than that. So why are adults, college students are adults, seemingly unable to handle everyday life with very, with, that has essentially very little pain. 
They have full bellies. Very little suffering, very little loss. Why, Why such failure or fear of failure? Now, there's a lot that could be said here, but we have to move on. And, 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 and my opinion is not the point, but certainly I do not want to paint with a broad brush because every situation is, is not the same. But as Christians, we're certainly not inoculated from life. We understand that, that when we get saved, that we're not saved from suffering, from living in a fallen world or that suffering is going to cease. Some of us know very well firsthand that that's not true. We know from having a front row seat to suffering pain and, and anguish that we know that we are not inoculated from living in this fallen world. Life is hard. We, we get that. And there are all kinds of things that give us stress and anxieties and can, can, can really put a hurting on our confidence. But as Christians, even though these things are difficult and can be difficult, having our confidence in the right places is vitally important. And we understand that. And maybe that's the major undercurring failure of culture, as we know. And the Bible speaks very clearly to us as Christians from Romans chapter 8, 15. For we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, lack of confidence, anxiety, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons whom we cry, Abba, Father. So our confidence is not in us. Our confidence is in the truth. Not the feeling, but the truth of, of having received the spirit of adoption as sons by which now we feel and we cry out, Abba, Father. Our confidence as Christians is in the Lord, right? And is firmly found as adopted as sons so that we can go in him and cry, Abba, Father. Confidence in ourselves, if you've been there, it fails. It falters. It falls. But as Christians, our confidence is not in ourselves, but in, in Christ. Confidence in our Father. Confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is the calming assurance in the midst of fear. And I believe that's what David is praying in Psalm 5 when he prays. These aren't just words in Psalm 5. They're emotions. You can feel, you can resonate with. Living in a fallen world, you can resonate with these words. Here in verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groanings. My groanings, right? Give attention to the sound of my crying, and my, my weeping, my crying out, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the, pres in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. That is a man who, yes, he is, might have made it through the night, verse 3, but still he is understanding and feels the anguish and groanings of living in a false or in a fallen world. And he's crying out to, Lord, to the Lord. 
And this is how you know this is, this is serious. Because if you, uh, if, if you are sick, and you're sick in, in bed, and you're able to rest, and you're able to sleep, then that's good, right? You're, I mean, it's not good you're sick, but it's good. You're sick, you're sleeping, and you're able to rest. But if you are in bed writhing and groaning in pain, then something's not right. That's call 911 or get into the car, we're going to the emergency room kind of situation. Kelly knows something about that. <laughs> That's not in my notes, but I was thinking that all week. Something's not right. We're, you're groaning something. So David's groaning, right? Something is not right. But if you look in those first three verses, as we have seen in Psalm 4, he's calling out, he's crying out, groaning and praying because his hope is grounded in the character of God. My king and my God. Here is the king saying, my king, my God. And his crying out and his groaning is, is linked right to the character of God. He's confident because he knows who God is. And even though David is the author, and even though David is the one who's praying, the point of this psalm isn't for us to look at David and, think that, and just think that he's just a great example of a prayer warrior. Certainly he is. But what shines even brighter than David and his confidence to pray is the one to whom he is praying to. And we cannot miss that. He didn't. He didn't miss that. He didn't belittle that. He didn't turn from that. He looked toward the Lord. It is the Lord. It is Yahweh that he prays. And as he prays here in Psalm 5, he recalls the character of God in making his requests known. And these same truths are what build us up these same truths is what, what builds our confidence. It's these same truths that, that builds our joy to remember when we remember the one to whom we are praying. And that gives us faith. And it drives us into prayer. So here are four things that David recalls in Psalm 5 that gives him confidence and should give us confidence, and that is God's holiness, love, justice, and kindness. God's holiness, number one. This doesn't sound exactly like the popular point you want to make when it comes to confidence. The holiness of God isn't exactly what many people turn to in churches and pa pastors don't, don't turn to as being the, the most important point that needs to be made to encourage Christians to pray with confidence. In fact, it's often ignored and forgotten. But this is where David turns in these first verses, in verse 4 through 6, in his time of distress. That God does what in these first verses? That he absolutely rejects evil in everyone who does evil. Look at verse 4. He says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. 
The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. So in these, these six, what we would call negative statements, is an absolute affirmation that God is holy. And these negative statements are, is an affirmation that God is holy. Now, now, this is something we need to understand, is that God's holiness is not ultimately about what God is against, but rather it is how he infinitely loves everything that is good. He infinitely loves everything that is good, everything that is beautiful, and everything that is true. And because he loves everything that is good, infinitely beautiful and true, then he infinitely hates everything that goes against good and righteousness. And that's why we have these six negative statements. And God has told us, and he has shown us detail through his word what is good and what is righteous. He has shown us we are without excuse. And these things... That the word that God's word has told us, they're not popular. Man does not want to hear objective truth. They do not want to hear objective right and wrong, that there is clearly what is good and what is evil, and that God has established what is good and what is evil according to his own character and according to his nature. But God hates sin precisely because he is a loving God. His love and his wrath are two sides of the same coin. In his holiness, as we, we know this popular, in popular way to defend, or define it, is that he is completely separate, which speaks of his absolute purity and his absolute delight in goodness and his perfect hatred for evil. And this is what makes God separate and different than any one of us. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You who are of pure eyes, then to see evil cannot look at wrong. And so in these six lines, in these three verses, it's showing us that God is holy. And God's holiness is our first step or foundation for confidence before the Lord and confidence and prayer. First, he says, God does not delight in wickedness. He is not entertained. It is not fun, nor is it funny to him. Sin in any way is not attractive to him. He is repulsed by wickedness wherever it may be or whenever it may be or whoever may do it. And I think this is something that we need to seriously consider because as we know, we live in a culture, society where all kinds of wickedness is considered entertaining. It's considered funny. And we should, as Christians, be more discerning and how we are not to take delight in wicked things that our God takes no delight in. 
He does not take delight in wickedness. The second, evil does not exist in God's presence. You see there at the second part of verse 4, it says it does not dwell in the presence of the Lord, which means to, to dwell means to sojourn with or to take up residence. And the, the picture is of someone who's passing through, um, picking the right place to stay the night for rest. So just as you, if you were traveling, you, you most likely would, you would try to do your best to try to, uh, to stay out of the, the sketchiest hotel you could find. You don't want to stay at the sketchy hotel. And why? Because it's sketchy. And even more than that, God is completely incompatible with sin. Sin does not dwell in him or around him. And this is the part of his holiness, brothers and sisters, we need to understand that is a consuming fire, as Hebrews 12, 29 says. That in his holiness, he will consume all sin like paper in a hot fire because evil cannot exist in his presence. Hebrews 10, 27. This kind of holiness may be hard for us to grasp because we are like Isaiah. And, and we confess, when Isaiah confessed, when in the presence of God, he said in Isaiah 6, 5, we all know, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We are undone. We are lost, we are unclean, and we are the ones that dwell in the midst of people because we are a part of them of unclean lips, but not the Lord. And that's what Isaiah realizes when he comes before the Lord. And this is why he is undone, because evil does not exist in the presence of the Lord and never will. And Isaiah was fearful that he would be burnt up because our God is a consuming fire. Third, the boastful or the arrogant cannot stand before the Lord. Now certainly there, there's this, in, in, in this line, we can see the historical significance, and in, in a sense, David understands this, because those who were conspiring against him, they were being prideful and, and arrogant. And when they were getting their way, when they were winning, they were boasting in it. Hey, we got this. The ball's on our side. It's 55 to nothing. We got this game. You're the loser, we're the winner, you're going down. And when they were getting away with it, they were boasting. But David is confident that his enemies, though prideful and though, though victorious now, and on top of the world now, they ultimately would not be able to stand before the righteous judge. Brothers and sisters, there are times when, when Christians are shamed, when Christians are marginalized for what we believe. Christians are hurt and canceled because of the gospel and because of truth. The truth by which we stand is the word of God. Those that boast in their victory over Christians, they may have swagger now. They may have arrogance now, but know this, that they will not be able to stand before the Lord. And that gives confidence. Fourth, and this is a big one, take a deep breath. Second half of verse 5, 
God hates those who do evil. Not exactly the most popular line in your Bible. Not exactly the kind of line that you see on church signs or coffee cups or t-shirts. We're used to the line, God hates the sin and not the sinner. That's the the line that we want to say. So so when this comes out of Psalm 5, I mean, it's like, uh uh-oh, which one's right? Is David speaking hyperbolically? Is this just in the heat of the moment of anguish? Or is this eternal truth? Well, certainly, brothers and sisters, we need to be careful with, as, with any verse of the Bible and not take one verse and build a whole theological structure and ignoring the rest of the Bible. Because what it still is absolutely true is John 3.16, that God so loved the world. But Psalm 5 means exactly what it says. It means exactly what it says, that that God hates everyone who does evil. He hates evil doers. And we should not soften the blunt reality of that. And why? Because the whole point we've been making from, from the beginning is that God is holy. And in his holiness, if evil can't even be in his presence, it'll just burn up like paper on hot coals. Then how in the world can we soften this? How can we soften this? Sin and evil is a direct offense against the holiness of God, which is a direct offense against the character of God. It goes against his very nature. He does not delight in wickedness. He does not allow wickedness in his presence. The boastful, the proud, the arrogant, they cannot stand before. So how can we come to this verse and soften it with the saying or to make the Lord tolerant of sinful ways? How could we do such things? In understanding this verse, we have to ask ourselves, who are the evildoers? Well, it's anyone who does evil. And the Hebrew verb behind this word is a participle, which means, uh, which, which means this evildoer is someone who sins as a way of life. Someone who has a long trajectory, track record of sin and evil. Ephesians 2 also helps us understand what this means. Ephesians 2, 3. At work... It's it's at work here speaking of those who are not in Christ and those who are in Christ. But now this is who you once were, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul doesn't soften that truth. Neither should we. We cannot soften this part of the gospel message. Because if we do, then we will never understand the greatness of God's love. The two sides of the same coin. You'll never understand the greatness of God's love and the greatness of God's grace and his mercy until we first understand that in his holiness that he hates sin and sinners and his wrath will be poured out against sinners. 
And you can't separate the two. And here's what's also very important. What we don't understand about this verse is what like, we like to equate hatred with our kind of hatred. Because when we hate, we sin. When God hates in his holiness and his perfection, it's not sin, it's righteousness. You'll never fully delight in Christ and the cross until we understand God's righteous anger towards sinners. Infinite holiness and infinite wrath towards sinners, but on the cross, Jesus absorbed that wrath. He absorbed that that wrath towards sinners to save them. Just to save us. And, and that's how we are to understand this verse and how it works right along with John 3.16. Because God so loved the world that he did what? He sent his son to die. To die for sinners, those who were his enemies. More on that in a moment because we have to go on with this list. Number five, the list goes on. The Lord will destroy liars. Lying in our society is now just seems like it's no big deal. Since 1994, some of y'all know specifically the event I'm talking about. It's just accepted that it's okay. That, it, that it's, it's okay to, to lie. And there's no consequences to lie. We're, we, we understand that. We, we're lied to all the time. We hear it. Because people get away with with it all the time. But here's the absolute truth, is that the Lord takes truth and honesty very seriously. Can I say it any more seriously than that? Very, very seriously? Yeah, he'll destroy liars. So seriously, it's in the Ten Commandments, right? The Lord hates liars and lies because he is the truth. He is the truth, and his word is truth. God's holiness means that he will rightly deal with liars, and this comforts David because David is crying out because here's people lying against him. In many ways, brothers and sisters, this is to be a warning to us. Certainly, to love truth, to protect truth, to speak the truth, but it's also a comfort to us as we now live in a world that just lies and is full of liars. It's funny how so many people tell lies, but they don't think themselves to be a liar. But that's one of the very things Jesus says. You ever told a lie? Yeah, then you're a liar. We should be comforted. And lastly, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful. These are the violent. Those that take advantage of others for their own gain. There is so much evil, violence, destructive, bloodthirsty, and so bad, things that are so bad that I I can't even speak to you in public of how wicked these are. There is something here, though, brothers and sisters, that when we hear of such evil, evil people, evil systems, gross injustice, abuse, neglect, violence, and murder. May we remember the words of Christ from Revelation. Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my 
recompense with me, bringing my justice with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last and the beginning and the end. These things the Lord knows, and he abhors them, and he will bring recompense with him when he comes. So does the holiness of God give you confidence in prayer? It should, because he's holy. Again, because he will always do what is infinitely good and righteous, and knowing that he will always make things right. As followers of Christ, holiness does give us confidence. It gives us confidence to be able to come before the Lord, to be encouraged, and to be comforted, and to have peace. Second is God's love. Second point in the sermon, right, is God's love. And as David remembers and he rehearses in his prayer the holiness of God with those six negative statements, we see also him recite God's love because God's wrath against sin is not the last word. Because David is not left without hope, and neither should we. And here's the problem, though. There's a problem. Because was David not a liar? Was David not a murderer and bloodthirsty? Was David not at times in his life doing evil? Did David not act arrogantly and prideful in what he thought he had accomplished? I mean, that's all, that's all six of those verses, isn't it? That's all six in those verses, but, but David still has hope, and that hope is not in, but this is how good I've done, God, but it is in the steadfast love of God. Verse 7, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. Verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Yahweh has hated wickedness. But David experiences his, his abundant loving kindness. Evil does not dwell with Yahweh, but David entered into his house. The boastful will not stand before Yahweh's eyes, but, but David does what? He comes and bows down before the, the Lord in his holy temple. Yahweh destroys liars and abominates those who shed blood and deceive. But David fears the Lord, and that fear keeps him from sinning. These verses are clear that David's confidence is not in his righteousness, but his confidence is in the Lord. And so he comes and he bows down before the Lord's holy temple and in fear before the Lord. It's based solely on the steadfast love of God. To embrace a biblical view of God's love is to come like David did, humbly, in the love of God. Humbly coming and calling out for the mercy of God to act on our behalf. Were we Guilty as David? Are we not just as deserving of the wrath of God 
but yet in faith and by faith we believed in the work of Christ. And that is what has saved us, and through Christ's work, atoning work on the cross, we would be forgiven of our sin. That is his steadfast love. And through Christ, he brings us into his presence, to his holy temple. Look at Romans 5. It'll be up on the screen, but if you can turn there. Romans 5, verse 6. For we were all weak, still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. As David, we were enemies. We were guilty. We were the ungodly. We were weak. We were the evildoers. But what is this, what is this verse telling us? That the, the steadfast love of God is shown perfectly through the work of Christ. So how do we come confidently then before, before the Lord? We come in the work of Christ. We come through the, the work that Christ has done through his blood. Now that we are justified, now we are justified before the Lord. Listen to this from Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Let me just sit there for just a second. Verse 4. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. And listen, here it is. Not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to his hope, to the hope of eternal life. Steadfast love. Steadfast love to his people. The love of God in Christ toward you and toward me if you are in Jesus Christ. The love of God builds us and builds our confidence up. That's what gives us confidence before the Lord to pray. That's what gives us confidence in, in this life, no matter what the situation is. That's our posture in this life. And I don't see any pride. I don't see arrogance there. 
but I see humility and confidence. Confident in the work of what Christ has done. And the third part of David's prayer that gives us confidence is God's justice and knowing that he is just. In verse 9, he goes and speaks of the enemies from verse 8, and he gives an indictment of them and why they are his enemy in, in verse 9. And there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They, they flutter and with their tongue. I mean, this goes right back to verses 5 and 6, doesn't it? They're boastful. They're evil. They, they speak lies, and they, that will not stand in the presence of God. And to sum up this indictment is pretty much this, is that there's no reliability in their words, and they're liars. And, and like, this, and like the, the story of the boy who, who cried wolf, they're completely unreliable. There's words, when you, when you put that first phrase with the, with the, the last phrase, the tongues that, that, that are flattery, right? Which means, they, which means these guys, their words are slippery. They're slick, like a politician. But their hearts are dead. And you see right there in the middle of the verse, their hearts are dead because out of their mouths comes what? The stench of the grave, the destruction of the grave. Now Paul quotes verse 9 in Romans 3. In 3.13, and he makes the point. That, that none seek God, and, and all together all have turned aside and have become worthless. And his, and his point is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God there in verse 23. And then he says that they're like an open grave, and their throats of, and the seed and tongue speak against the Lord. Their words give evidence of their corruption, of their rebellion, of their evil doing. But verse 10, as after verse 9, he indicts verse 10, he calls upon the Lord to act justly and to judge the wicked. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall, fall by them by their own counsels because of the abundance of transgressions cast out to them, for they have rebelled against you. David, David wants the Lord to allow the futility of the wicked counsel in which the blessed man does not walk to rebound upon them. Right? Let them reap what they sow, Lord. They've sown the lies. Let them reap the harvest of their lies. And these words are asking for judgment. Here in Psalm 5 is our first imprecatory prayer. But if you notice that this prayer isn't for David to be vindicated, but for the Lord to be honored. For the Lord to be vindicated. But he says, for they have rebelled against you. David was God's anointed king, and he was the model pointing forward to Christ. And because of this, David held this unique place in history as the, the king of Israel, and he prays this way. And I think it's appropriate for him to pray this way, to pray for judgment and pray for justice. But what I think also very clear for us brothers and sisters is maybe we should be very careful when we pray this way. Or maybe we should be very careful not to pray this way. But rather maybe we should pray not just for God's justice to come upon the wicked, but maybe we should pray for the gospel to transform the hearts of the wicked. 
Because again, as we've already quoted from Romans 5, Titus 3, that we were once the wicked. And by God's grace, we have been transformed. And so we pray for them that the gospel would transform, but but we also know that behind those prayers, we know without a doubt that one day the Lord will act in his perfect justice. That's what's behind our prayers, right? We're praying for them that the gospel would transform them and that they would come to know Christ, right? As the apostle Paul was casting stones, he wasn't apostle, he was Saul at the time, casting stones or helping in the casting of stone in the killing of of Stephen. Here was an enemy of God, and yet God still radically transformed him. And we should be praying the same thing for those who are the enemies of God, and yet behind them we know that God will act according to his perfect justice. And so when we pray, we can pray in confidence. We can pray confidently that that as we are sharing the gospel, as the gospel goes forth, the gospel will do its glorious work to save even the worst among us. But we also can pray confidently that in the promises of God's word, that the wicked will one day have justice and will be judged because they have rebelled against him. And lastly, as the psalm closes out, we see God's kindness. And this is like a resounding, a reverberation once again from from the rest of the psalms we've already heard, from Psalms 1 through 4 already. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. We've heard this before. Rejoice in the refuge that we have. Let them sing for joy and spread your protection over him that, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. Basically, the whole point of the sermon is made right here. For those who take refuge in the Lord, those who who pray and trust in him, those that have confidence in his holiness and love and justice and kindness, then what is the call? The call is let them rejoice. And why? Because we have a firm refuge in him. Let that rejoicing be turned into singing for joy. Singing, right? Here's the the emotion part of of the psalm, right? That it it turns into something. That, That refuge, that blessing, that joy, that rejoicing, it turns into singing. And I know in the Christian life, it's not always rejoicing. As we know, as Paul says, sometimes it's weeping. But when when we recall the good news of the gospel and the grace of, of God that has been extended to us, then we can rejoice even in suffering and still together sing for joy. When... When Martin Luther was making his way to Augsburg to, to appear before the cardinal in answer for all of his writings, one of the cardinal's servants was taunting him because he was kind of, kind of arrested at that moment. And basically saying, if, 
if the elector of Saxony, one of, those, one of the princes, if they're, if they're there and they just completely desert you, and they completely leave you, and they just, they basically turn on you in the last minute, what are you going to do then? How are you going to survive this trial? And Luther's answer was this. He said, under the shelter of heaven. Why? Because we can firmly rely on the sovereign protection of the Lord and in his kindness. And that gives us confidence. Confidence to come before the Lord to rejoice and to sing. And this is why we sing together. This is why we rejoice together. This is why we should exult in him together because in his kindness, he has spread his protection over you, meaning he has saved you from sin and from death. Jesus Christ, he is that righteous one. And through him, O oh beloved, we have been blessed. You have been covered with the Lord the Lord's favor like a shield. So then have confidence today. Have confidence today and have confidence tomorrow and for the, the days to come. Pray confidently. Come before him with, with confidence because he is holy, because he has shown us his love in Jesus Christ, because he is just and because he is righteous and because he is kind. Is there anything else greater than that that you can come and you can place your confidence in or hope in than that? If you do, you can preach next week. There's nothing. And is there any other place that you want to lean on than that? And those who have had to lean on that know that it's worth leaning on and to continue to lean on because it's a confidence and a hope that will never fail. It's based upon his word and upon his promises and upon his eternal truth. And all God's people say,